Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. A special thanks to the Blog Talk Radio team for featuring the show on their homepage all day today. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And chatters, please feel free to put all the questions you want asked in the chat room. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on AfroGenius.com and on my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. In fact, please go to my page and like it. Well, tonight's show will focus on writing and getting your book published. And I am pleased to have Anita Paul, known as the author's midwife, with us tonight. She helps corporate, professionals, and successful entrepreneurs enhance their expertise by becoming a published author. Through her Write Your Life program, new authors overcome the struggles of writing, publishing, and marketing a book, and they're leveraging their book to achieve success. She is the author of three books, including Write Your Life, Career, excuse me, Create Your Ideal Life and the book you've been wanting to write. She is co-author of Publishing as a Marketing Strategy, How to Market Your Book for Free, and Got Proof, A Genealogical Journey Through the Use of Documentation. As a freelance writer, she has written articles for over 25 trade publications in the United States and Canada. And she owns The Right Image, a communications company, and she is host of the live streaming video show, Book Your Success. Book Your Success. So let me give a warm welcome to the author's midwife, Anita Paul. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much, Bernice. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it, and I've been so looking forward to this. Oh, I have been too, and I have this this burning question for you. 
You call yourself the author's midwife. Please tell us why you decided to do that. <laughs> I <laughs> There's a little interesting story that comes uh, with that, actually. I didn't even come up with a name. I must give props to a wonderful author and colleague, Miss Patrice Dickey. And um, actually, I was attending a party, a writer's party. There were all these wonderful authors there. And it seemed like as soon as I walked in the door, Patrice was talking with another couple. And I walked up, and she said, hey, here's Anita. She's the author's midwife. And I said, honey, that must have been what I came here for because I can leave now. You gave me what I came here for. So she actually dubbed me the author's midwife. And I have to just give her props um, Unfortunately, Patrice passed away actually a couple of months ago, and she is very well missed in the Atlanta area uh, authors and writers circle. But uh, she certainly left me with that moniker, and I use it proudly. Well, my condolences to her family and friends, and she certainly has certainly left you with something that you can carry on. Exactly. Well, let's start at the beginning. How does someone, let's say a genealogist in particular, Get started writing a book. How do you start? That's a $50 million question, right? Yes. (laughs) Well, of course, you start with square one, Um, especially for genealogists. I know that you have a ton of research that you've done. You've got all these wonderful stories. You have different family lines and different names and just a wealth of information. By the time you get to the point uh, as a genealogist or a family history researcher, uh, by the time you get to the point that you feel you're ready to write a book, you've got a ton of information. And so one of the first things I would suggest is to choose a story, just one. And for some people, that's really hard to do. Again, you have your mama's side and your daddy's side and, and all of these different stories. And so the idea really is to choose one choose a point in time, choose a certain family grouping that you want to tell the story of, choose a place, you know, maybe the town that your family is from, choose one person, one ancestor whose life you want to explore or a particular event that was significant in the lives of your ancestors. So choose one thing, one of those things, and decide that you're going to build your story around that. Or you may actually decide that it's going to be your own memoir of how you found all of this wonderful information, how you did your research. So Mm -hmm. just decide on one thing. I think that's one of the challenges that most authors, whether they're genealogists or not, come up against is that they want to tell all this stuff, right? First you start out thinking you don't have enough, and once you get started, you want to put everything in the bag of groceries, right? So just choose one thing. (laughs) Choose one thing. Don't try to tell, you know, the story of all of your genealogical research. Just pick one. And then from there I would suggest you do an outline. And I have a really simple system for outlining um, your book. Uh, So you want to do an outline and then really decide what you want your story to do for the reader. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that's a challenge for a lot of uh, new authors is that they have trouble trying to determine who their ideal reader is. But once you determine who that ideal reader is, you want to figure out what you want that reader to think, to feel, and to do while and after they read your book. Think, feel, okay. and do. Think, and you feel, should be thinking do. about that, yes, thinking about that as you develop your outline, as you develop your content, as you determine what goes in 
and what stays out. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. how you get started. So that's how you get started. Now, uh, Yvette uh, Porter Moore uh, mentioned that she has chosen one family. Mm-hmm. And that's how, so which was part of one of your recommendations. Right, but, right. But then how do we, you know, organize all of our research into one story? Because I can tell you I have enough stuff to write about 15 stories. You know what? Somebody recently said to me, I was at a session um, with one of my colleagues in the publishing industry, and he put up a quote, and I can't even remember who he said, you know, who we quoted this after, but the quote was, why write one long book when you can write two short ones? (laughs) So don't try to cram everything into this one book, Uh right? Don't try to tell the story of everybody in your family. If there is a compelling event, a point in time, a one particular family or ancestor who is especially, um, you know, that you really connect with, right, in your research. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you do all this research and you find little bits and pieces about different ancestors, but then there's right. always one or two who you're able to find much more information about or you're just particularly engaged and interested in that one great, 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 great whoever, mm-hmm. and their life is especially interesting to you. So choose that one to tell the story of. And the rest of it does not mean that it's wasted research or that you can't use it for anything else. Use it for a different book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If the, Or if those other ancestors are you know, obviously connected and related to this one that you want to write the story about, then they can be supporting characters. But you're not telling their story. You're telling the story of this one who you are most connected to emotionally, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yes, yes. So what are some other strategies uh, for creating the book content? Well, there, there's a lot of different ways, and, and it kind of depends on your comfort level with writing. Some people have challenges with writing, just sitting down and writing content, and I totally get that. Um, and so if you are um, timid about writing or not necessarily very confident in your ability to write, among other ways to get started developing content for your book, I think is uh, one is journaling. I absolutely love to journal. And the book that you mentioned that I wrote um, called Write Your Life, Create Your Ideal Life and the Book You've Been Wanting to Write is actually designed as a journal. It is structured as a journal, and it actually walks readers through the process of using journal entries as content for their book. So whether you get that book or not, and I would love it if you would, but practice journaling. Journaling is a wonderful way to practice your writing, to um, record your journey as you do your genealogical research and how you feel about it and what you discovered and the reaction of the people that you told about this and that kind of thing. So journaling is a wonderful way to create book content. Mm -hmm. Another really good way is to record your thoughts and ideas and um, even the outline of your book and, and what you think might make for good content. So people, we we talk all day long, right? And yes. so we may feel more comfortable talking out the content of our book rather than writing it out. 
And okay. so I have found for several clients that actually voice recording yourself, you know, sort of talking about what you would say in a book is a great way to start. Get a digital recorder or whatever recording device you have. You can use your cell phone or whatever. And just speak into it and talk about, you know, this person or this event or this family or this town or whatever. Talk it out. Either transcribe it yourself or hire someone to transcribe it word for word. Then go back and look at that transcription and, you know, kind of fashion it differently because obviously we speak differently than we write. We don't always speak in proper English. You know, we're very casual with our, our speech these days, and you don't want your book to be as casual as that. It really should be more formal. Mm-hmm. Um, so you definitely don't want to take your voice recording word for word as content, but it is a wonderful uh, foundation for your book content. So certainly journaling, voice recording, um, and always, always, always start with an outline for your book. Um, and okay. I mentioned earlier that I have a real easy system for outlining your book, and it's as simple as one, three, three, one. Okay. okay. So okay. everybody listening should be taking notes right now. Okay, one, three, three, one, everyone. <laughs> one, three, three, one. Okay. okay. So the one, the first one, is decide on what the one theme of your book is. The one theme. Every book has a theme, and there's only one. Okay. Okay. So your theme could be about, you know, the the struggle for freedom. It could be about victory in the midst of the storm. It could be, you know, whatever the one theme is, you know, uh, women surviving, you know, the death of their spouses and, you know, raising a family to success, whatever it might be. But there's one theme for your entire book. And basically think of your theme as the answer to the question that you will inevitably be asked. When, when people find out that you're going to write a book, they're going to say what, Bernice? What's your book about? That's right. And the answer to that question is the theme uh-huh. in a sentence. It's not all the action that takes place throughout the book. It is what the book is about. When somebody what? says, so what was that movie about? It was about President Lincoln and blah, 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 you know, whatever it was, the recent movie that you saw. You don't mm-hmm. go into all the scenes and all the details. You're talking about the one theme. The one theme. Okay. Okay. So then that first three is that you're going to have three main points. Okay, our three main scenes or three main issues that happen in the life of this character uh, during this particular time frame, three main incidents, three main, you know, struggles, three main whatever. But it's three main things, and it could end up being more than three. Let's start mm-hmm. with three because it's easy. Three is just easy. Okay. So after that three, the second three is three supporting facts or examples or stories or whatever that come under each of those three things. So you have a one theme, three main points or incidents or whatever, three supporting concepts, stories, could be characters, okay? And then the final one is just what should the what's the one thing that people should get out of your book. Are they inspired? Are they educated? Because maybe you wrote a how-to book, how to do genealogy in XYZ town or in a particular state or for a particular ethnic group, right? Yes. What's the one thing that your readers should get out of your book? What should they be left with? Should they now know something that they didn't know before? Should they now 
feel that, well, gee, if she could do it, I could do it too. You know, if that family overcame, then, you know, mine can too. The one thing. So that's one, three, three, one. One theme, three main points, three supporting points, facts, or stories, and then one wrap-up, one great thing that people can get out of your book. And that's your outline. Now, that sounds so easy. (laughs) It Uh, is. Maybe I should say, that sounds really hard. (laughs) (laughs) It really is easy. And, again, that is a starting point. Mm -hmm. Again, those three things could become five. It shouldn't be 12. That's too much. But your one theme and the one final thing people should get out of it should always be one. You don't have five themes in your book. The ones are always ones. Threes might one be up theme. to five. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, but the one theme and the one takeaway from your book should should always be one. It should always be one. Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a one-minute break, give everybody a chance to just think about what you've just said, come back and continue this discussion, because I already see some comments coming out of the chat. <laughs> Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, you have been listening to Anita Paul, the author's midwife, and she has just given us an outline of how we can get started with our book. What is the one theme? Then three main points, three supporting facts, examples of stories, What is the one thing people should get out of your book? And then the wrap-up. And coming out of this was a comment from Yvette Porter-Moore, and she mentioned that she's writing portions of her mother's journal for a book and that she's gone back to find some individuals uh, that that knew her mother, and, and she wanted to know, do you think talking about the research of these people is a good idea? And, and Anita, what would what, what you say about that? I think if there's, you know, a common theme among the stories and if there's not any dirt that's going to ruin anybody, I say go for it. I say go and talk to the people and find out what story, I mean, you know, what's the story that can be told from their comments? Um, 
it's kind of tough sometimes when you're dealing with people's journals because that's very, very per- other people's journals. It's very personal. And mm-hmm. you want to make sure that they're not revealing anything that could be construed as, you know, slander or libel or anything like that. Um, but if it's in very positive things um, and you talk to these people and get their permission in writing, um, to talk about that and, and talk about maybe it's, you know, the mother has shared her friend, you know, maybe it's a friendship journal. And she's talking about these wonderful friends that she's had throughout her life. And, and perhaps some of them obviously are still alive. So you want to go and maybe interview them and talk about, well, you know, my, my mother or my grandmother wrote about you in her journal and she mentioned you fondly and I want to um, explore writing a book about it. Why don't you tell me about your relationship with her and, and some of the wonderful times that you shared um, and get their permission to include those stories. I think that would be very, very nice. Mhm. Well, that sounds like a good recommendation. So what would you recommend that people use blogging as a way to develop content? Or would you recommend that people use blogging as a way to develop content for their book? Yeah, blogging is a great way um, to practice writing, if nothing else. So mm-hmm. if you're not used to writing on a consistent basis, again, as I mentioned, journaling is a great way to brush up on your writing skills. But blogging is an excellent way to, yes, develop content for your book. I know several um, authors and aspiring authors who started just that way uh, by blogging. And um, they blog about their genealogical research, uh, their discoveries, and um, you know, either have have turned those things and that those blog posts into a book, or are working on that at, as we speak. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you we know now. I guess most people, you set up a blog. There's many free resources to do that, like Blogger.com or WordPress. I think it's WordPress.com. Mm-hmm. I think there's a WordPress.org and a WordPress.com, but I'm not sure which one is the free version, but. Utilize a free version. They've got wonderful templates. You can set it up to look as pretty as you want to. And then decide, again, just as you would, in my opinion, for a journal, is decide what is the purpose of your blog. So mm-hmm. um, are you writing, again, about a particular family line? Or are you writing just about the process of doing this whole research thing? You know, are you just writing from a from a memoir-type perspective, this is my journey and this is what, you know, why I started to do this research and what I'm discovering and, and what I'm learning. You could write about it in that way. Um, or you could write about, um, again, a particular time in history or a particular town or a certain event, a historical event, and how it impacted your family, your ancestors. So mm-hmm. decide what the focus of your blog is. And stick with that. I mean, be consistent because, again, uh, you're building content for this book that's going to have one theme. And, you know, we're hoping that that blog is going to lead you in that direction. So I think, you know, again, it, it, it can be very, it can be free or very inexpensive to begin blogging. They're very easy to create. Um, and it, of course, allows you to practice your writing. Um, but I will caution bloggers to keep in mind that writing for a blog online and writing for a book are slightly different. You know, we we write short blog posts um, and books are longer in length and typically our chapters are different and that kind of thing. So you want to make some adjustments um, to your writing for your blog, but certainly your posts um, are are helping you build content and focus and, again, practice um, Mm -hmm. for your book. Yeah. 
And not all blogs have to be public. public. I mean, they can, I guess, can blog just to, to practice it and then eventually go back because it also sounds like you're building your outline you uh, exactly, with your blog. Exactly with right. That theme. Uh-huh. You're very right. You could very well be building your outline um, with that theme. So, yeah, be a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a comment coming out of the chat um, basically saying starting is not the problem. Finishing is the problem. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people are like, how do I stop myself from writing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, finishing can be a problem, especially for researchers, because, Oftentimes, people feel like if I could just if I could just find one more bit of information, I can prove this a little bit more. You know, if I just find one more proof point, then mm-hmm. that will justify this you know story that I'm trying to tell. Or if I could just find the one missing link, you know, that one ancestor who's missing in the whole family tree, then I could finish. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep writing and writing and writing. <laughs> yes. You know, keep writing or and I've keep got researching too. <laughs> keep writing and keep researching and, you know, eventually I'll finish. So one of the well, a couple of things to help curb that is to develop an outline. Again, I'm going to always go back to that because when you have an outline, you know what what should happen throughout your story. Now, if you're writing a novel, for example, then your outline is really what what can be called a story arc, A R C. A story mm-hmm. arc. So you have the build-up, right? You set us up. Think about it like a movie. There's the setup. You get introduced to the characters and sort of the scene, and, and you know they set the scene and all of that. And then the drama builds, right? Think of a bell curve. And so you're going up, 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 and you're you're getting emotionally connected to these characters, and you're knowing more about them. You know their weaknesses and their interests and their fears and all of that. And then you sort of have this climax, which is at the top of the bell curve, that that point of contention, right? And Mm -hmm. then you sort of go down. There's a resolution to that, and then there's a wrap-up. So that's your story arc if you're writing your book in the form of a novel. And so that's pretty much how you're going to sketch out your outline for that type of a book. And I caution you to make sure that you know how the story should end before you even start because that will help you finish. Yes. If you start and have no idea of how you want to end this novel, you'll be writing and writing and writing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, did the people ever die? Did they move away? Did she lose the baby? Did You know, what happened? Right, so, right, And right. even you could, I suggest oftentimes, that you develop, and I'm not saying you have to write it all out, but sketch out even up to three possible endings. Right, because you've done oh, the research okay. and you really know how it ended, right? You really yes. know that the family, you know, tragically died or that they moved away and started a new life or that, you know, whatever happened. You know what happened. But you can end it wherever you want. Okay. You can end the story after the first child was born. You could end the story right before they moved to another town. You could end the story right after the war started. You can, you know, you decide where it ends, but decide. But decide, because I see there's a question coming out from Andrea saying, how do you know when to say when? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you have to decide that. Again, you know how the story ends because you've done the research. And what is going to make the most 
compelling ending for the reader. Okay, mm-hmm. so you always have to be thinking about your reader as you're writing, because as the writer and the researcher, you want to tell the whole thing, right? You right. want to tell it, and by the time you end, it's at you, right? <laughs> you started all the way in 1800, and you've written this book all the way to you. That's too much. Mm-hmm. So decide when it's going to end, and decide when, again, you've identified this reader, and you want to make it juicy for the reader. That's right. You really What's going to make it really, really compelling a real compelling ending for the reader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Yvette has a question for you. When writing a genealogical story, do you need to have citations and a bibliography for others to believe what you are writing? It depends on what genre you're writing in. Um, if you are writing a a memoir, a how-to, kind of how-to-do genealogy or how I did genealogy and how I found all this stuff, Mm -hmm. then uh, I say yes, I think you do. Um, Someone pointed out to me this notion of the genie police, right? All Mm -hmm. the genealogists are afraid of the genie police, that somebody's going to come up behind them one day and say, that's not true. I was actually just watching a news story, and I can't remember what book it was now, that... um, this academic researcher wrote this book several years ago and had cited all this research and many years later was all found to be fabricated, exaggerated mm-hmm. and fabricated. And there was a lot of numbers <laughs> okay. that they were talking about. And so that's scary. That's like a gut-wrenching, you know, kind of thing that people are like, I don't want to get busted out, right? I want people to say, she's a liar. She didn't do her research. Um, but I think that as long, and you should be doing this anyway as you're doing your research, right? You know, or you should know where you found certain documents, where you read certain information, your primary research, your secondary research. You should have these things documented already. So whether you use a bibliography and citations or not, if anybody ever questions you where you got the stuff, you already know. Mm-hmm. Because if you're an organized genealogist, and I'm sure you talk about this all the time, Bernice, you know, <laughs> right, ha-ha, everybody's snickering in the chat room. <laughs> you have documented throughout your time of research <laughs> where you found things, and you should know that already. But mm-hmm. if you are citing sources anywhere in your um, book, that if you're quoting anyone, you obviously want to give um, acknowledgement to those sources. And, um, you know, you definitely want to share the the um, the books and the citations and stuff that you've used. So, yeah, if you're mm-hmm. writing a memoir, if you're writing sort of a how-to tips book, that kind of thing, um, or even just even if you are just writing a story about these are the people in my family, these are my ancestors, and here's what I know about them. Right. Then absolutely, yes, you want to cite, use notations and citations, and use bibliography. Yeah. Right, right. And is there any particular citing style that you recommend? I think there are several, and I'm not the expert on that, but I would highly recommend either taking a course on how to cite. I'm sure mm-hmm. there's dozens of online courses in that community colleges as well. Or I would look at several books that are like 
the book that you want to write. So if you're writing a memoir, if you are writing a you know, personal account or a how-to book or whatever, find some other books in that same genre and note how those authors cite their sources. Mm-hmm. I've seen it several different ways. So some people use footnotes at the bottom of the page. Some people use, you know, a notes section in the back of the book mm-hmm. or a bibliography section in the back of the book. So you can do it either way, and there's probably a number of other ways to do it. Um, but making sure that you cite properly and um, reference all of the particulars, you know, what document, what location, what page, number, and all of that. Um, there's actually a really great book. And I don't know when she wrote this book. Um, Elizabeth Schoen Mills wrote a book called Evidence, right? Uh, citing an analysis for the family historian, and mm-hmm. she has some great, great information. I think she wrote this maybe probably 15 years ago um, that talks about how to cite your sources. Again, it's called Evidence. Right, and she also has a quick sheet. Uh, that others can order that gives them the ideas on how they should or, or recommendations as to how they should uh, uh, cite their sources. Good, good, good. Excellent. Yeah. So there's different resources out there for you, um, probably very inexpensive. Um, take some courses. There's workshops, I think, at a lot of the genealogy conferences. Almost all of them have a uh, a, a workshop on citing your sources. Right, that's right, uh-huh. and and you'll you'll right you'll find uh, whenever you go to a genealogy conference, someone is uh, speaking about citing your sources, and and then also evidence, um, uh-huh. definitely evidence. Well, I'd like to just find out if any of you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to call six four six two zero 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 four nine one and press one to speak to the host. We certainly like to hear from you, and chatters continue to give us your your thoughts and make comments. We appreciate everything that you're saying in the chat room. So, Anita, let's talk about some of the reasons that people are reluctant to write. Mm. Well, <laughs> there um, there are many, I'm sure, but... One of the excuses that I hear most from aspiring authors in terms of why they haven't written their book mm-hmm. um, in the last five years or whatever, or why it's taken them five or ten years to write a book is time. Everybody's yeah. got the time issue, right? I'm too busy. Mm-hmm. I've got a family. I have a full-time job or a business or whatever, and I just don't have time mm-hmm. to write. Mm-hmm. And so, so my suggestion to that is to set a schedule and stick with it. Um, I think that we, we make time to do whatever is important to us, whatever matters to us. Mm-hmm. And if writing a book matters to you and really getting it out matters to you, then you will make the time. You will find the time. You will adjust your schedule and cut out certain things that you do that take up time, and you will mm-hmm. plug in your writing time for that instead. And, you you know, it, it just takes – it's a matter of just looking at your day or a week or a month and saying – what can I cut out just for just for the time that I'm writing my book? It's not that I forever have to never do these things again, but until I finish my book, I'm not going to spend five hours on Facebook, you mm-hmm. know, three days a week, you <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, That's five hours I could be writing. You know, I'm not going to spend 20 hours in front of the TV in a week. I could be writing my book. 
And so then when your book is over, you can go back to watching 20 hours a week of TV if that's how you choose to spend your time. But um, make the commitment, make a schedule, and stick with it. Um, Another reason I think that people are reluctant to write is a lot of us have had bad experiences with writing, you know, and and, and some of the stuff is ages old and we're holding on to, you know, your 10th grade English teacher gave you a D on your paper and she said your writing was horrible and, you know, you're 50 years old now and you're not over it yet. So your feelings are still hurt and (laughs) you still think that you're an awful writer and even though you have a burning desire to write this book, you just lack the confidence Mm -hmm. in your writing ability. And so for Mm -hmm. that I suggest that, this sounds harsh, but either you get over it or you go take a writing class. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. Take a beginning writing class. Read some books. Stephen King has a wonderful book for aspiring authors called On Writing, On Writing. And mm-hmm. um, he just talks about some very common elements of, of good storytelling. Another uh, book called Bird by Bird, and I forgot her name. It just escapes me immediately. Bird by Bird, two wonderful books about writing, How the, the, just the art of storytelling, of good writing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. read, writers read, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you lack confidence in your writing, read the kinds of books that you want to write. I mm-hmm. talked to a, an aspiring author a couple of weeks ago, and she was telling me she wants to write this uh, science fiction book. But she says she hates to read science fiction, and I'm thinking, you have a hard time. If you don't like to read the kind of books that you want to write, it will be difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to be a good writer. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, obviously building up your confidence by building your ability and your knowledge about writing, good storytelling, and that kind of thing is certainly helpful for those reluctant writers out there. Mm-hmm. But I think once you make the commitment, um, set your schedule, join a, join a writer's club, you know, a writer's group. Here in Atlanta we have a, you know, the Atlanta's Writer's Club, the Georgia Writer's Club. And I'm sure in your state or in your town there are several writer's groups, and it's, it is a wonderful experience to be around other aspiring writers, to hear that they're having the same struggles that you're having. They often have speakers at the meetings that can talk about how to overcome certain things. And so, you know, join those writers' groups. And, um, and I think you shared with me, Bernice, another tactic I think is wonderful, which is really to push and challenge yourself. There is a... Uh, I guess it's a contest or a challenge. Yeah, the Nano, yes. <laughs> National <laughs> writing. It's November, October. I think it's November. Um, every November, from the 1st to the 30th, there is a challenge called NaNoWriMo, which is short for National Novel Writing Month. And uh, aspiring authors, aspiring writers, are challenged to write a novel in a month. It, it was a minimum of 50,000 words. 50,000 words, that's right. Right. What a challenge. And so they break it down and however many words you should be writing per day, and, and, all, and it is a challenge. And so only a percentage of people actually say, and you can't use anything you've already started. You have to start from scratch. And many people don't finish, but the challenge of trying is, can really, really boost you. So right. I suggest you take it on. And it 
it was a very encouraging experience. If any of you have tried it, tried to write 50,000 words in 30 days, I can assure you, you have a challenge awaiting you. <laughs> but you also have a lot of support because right. you have like this cheerleader group and they write you and they encourage you and they meet at the library with their laptops and they just have they just write 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 so it's it's something to for those who really want to practice writing that's a good thing especially with right. the wonderful guidelines just write <laughs> that's, that's right that's, that's right. right just write that's all right. For the reluctant writers, just write. You just will get write. better. It's just like anything else you want to do. The more you do it, the better you'll become. Practice, 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 right? That's so. right. But what is the industry standard for the length of a book these days? You know, some books you see, they're so big. But what about words or pages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, ask 10 people and you get 10 answers. So there's okay. no, like, one answer for this kind of book. It should be this song. But I'll tell you, there are ranges. Um, and we know that we're in the 140-character tweet generation. So we are finding that um, the length of books, any kind of book, has gotten much, much shorter, you know, mm-hmm. in the last decade or two. So, you know, if you're, if you're looking at writing a novel, for example, um, very, we're very near to gone are the days of the 500-page roots novel. Mm-hmm. Although, um, and this wasn't really a novel, but The Warmth of Other Suns is one of my favorite current books. You know, that's out in her book. I think that's uh, probably 450 pages. The Warmth of Other Suns. So yeah. that's in this day and age an exceptionally long book. So really, novels are can comfortably between 75,000 and 150,000 words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if you're looking at writing a novel, think about that word count. So 100,000 words is comfortable for a novel these days. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're writing, you know, like a nonfiction tips, how to, you know, self-help type book, probably about 50,000 is fine. Oh, that's you know, not and that's bad. kind of that's kind of a right. You don't, you, yeah. you know, we're close to doing that for a nano So, fifty thousand words, which sounds scary to people who've never done anything close to that, but yes, it's totally possible. Totally possible mm-hmm. for a memoir, for example. You're looking at about the same, about fifty to sixty thousand words. Um, you know, and then there's children's and young adult and all that kind of stuff. And of course, that depends on what age your reader is. So you're not going to write a 50,000-word <laughs> book for a six-year-old. You know, that'll be more like, you know, 20,000 words mm-hmm. uh, or less even sometimes. So it depends, you know, for the young adult and children's books and that kind of thing. It depends on the age group that you are writing for. But, you know, books, not as long as they used to be. And people are fine with that. People want to read their book again on a flight from, you know, New York to L.A. They want to be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, they don't well, want to have to take three months to read your book. Oh, that's right. That's right. They want to just get it, understand it, and move on to the next book. Right. right. They want to get their takeaway, yeah. and they do want to get on to the next book because there are like hundreds of thousands of book titles that are published every single year. And, mm-hmm. you know, some authors might be, aspiring authors might be discouraged by that, but I'm very encouraged because it suggests that people are reading. Mm-hmm. That's a good mm-hmm. thing. People are yeah. reading, and so they want to read your book so they can get on to the next book. 
Right. Well, let's talk about, I mean, reading your book. Uh, tell us the process of how a book is produced, and what experts do you need to produce a quality book? You need several. Don't ever, don't try this at home and don't try this alone, right? Um, you need what I call a publishing dream team. You absolutely okay. do. It's it's mm-hmm. nearly impossible to get a book published by yourself, even though uh, the industry that I support and recommend is, is self-publishing or independent publishing. It's called self-publishing, not because you do it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you really do need to have a publishing dream team, and that team is people that you know and trust and who support your work and are professionals first and foremost, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. this industry. And so I, of course, would suggest you start out with a coach, an author's coach, a writer's coach, someone who can help you not only write good content, but also plan your whole strategy around this book because a lot of times people jump into it with no idea of why they're writing other than the fact that they want to get a book out, Mm -hmm. which is fine. But, like, who are you writing the book for? What Mm -hmm. should the reader get out of it? What are your expectations? Mm-hmm. for the success of this book, those kinds of questions really should be asked very early on in your process, and a coach, a good coach, will help you get to the answers, help okay. you organize your content, connect you with industry experts and resources and contacts, uh, provide you know professional insight into the whole process. They can help manage the project because probably you either have a full-time job or you run a business or whatever, and you probably don't have time to make sure that all the other people on your dream team are doing what they should be doing. That's what your coach is for. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I guess the, one of the main things you need a coach for is accountability. Accountability. Uh-huh. You know, the kick in the pants when you don't feel like writing and that, uh, that, that coach is calling you going, did you write today? I need to see what you wrote. Did you finish oh, your wow. plan? Did you finish it? Yeah, ouch. You know, it's just like a personal trainer or a yes. health coach or whatever. You or don't get laid off wife. the book. <laughs> or that. Well, baby Right? Okay. So I suggest you start off with a coach, number one on your publishing dream team. Another person that is critical is an editor, a professional copy editor. And this is not your niece who is an English major at the local university. This is a professional copy editor who's going to check for content and flow and your storytelling and agreement of, you know, all of your characters and making sure that, you know, in Chapter 1, your great-great-grandmother's name was Edna, and by Chapter 5, the same character's name was Ethel. You know, you need the consistency, and that's what your editor will check, in addition to grammar and spelling and punctuation and all that kind of stuff. So a professional copy editor is another critical person on your publishing dream team, as well as um, a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. We like to think that I'm so comfortable with with Word or whatever. I can just, you know, type up my my manuscript in in, uh, Microsoft Word, and it will be ready to go to the printer. Not so. Um, You need someone who is skilled at interior page design and layout and making sure that your table of contents, the pages that are in that, are the same as the pages that's in the book, especially if you're going to be utilizing an index or your bibliography or a footnote section, because if you're numbering your footnotes in Chapter 1, 1 through 12, 
And then, you know, you go on to another chapter and they start with one again or they start with 13. You want to make sure that the references to the footnotes in the back are the same as the pages that they refer to in the book content. Mm -hmm. All of that is layout and um, that's where your graphics person comes in. And in addition to developing and designing a beautiful book cover because that's the first impression that people will get of your book. Okay. So a coach, an editor, a graphic designer, an illustrator for people who want actual graphic art, newly created, you know, art for their particular book. And that often comes into play with children's books and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I have a question. Yes, Uh well, there's a couple of questions coming out of here. Uh, first of all, oh, somebody how, said, would, how much? I see that. Well, somebody <laughs> also said, how do you obtain a publishing dream team? And then, how much? <laughs> how much? How much? That is the question everybody wants to know, how much. And I will tell you that there is no one answer for how much does it cost to get your book produced. Um, it does depend on who your publishing dream team is and their pricing, and it varies from here to there. But I will tell you that um, it's certainly not free to produce a book. Mm-hmm. And um, you definitely want to go into it knowing that this is not just a bunch of expenses and not just a whole lot of checks you're going to be writing, but it is truly an investment. Okay, mm-hmm. it's an investment in your dream come true. Um, and know that you need to have a minimum to get a, to get a very well-done book. You need a minimum of about $3,000. That's a minimum. That's a minimum. Okay. That's a minimum. So if you're saying ouch right now, then you need to maybe step back and save some money with with the goal of reaching at least a $3,000 minimum. Know that it's not all going to be paid at the same time. In other words, you're probably not going to write one person a $3,000 check today. Mm -hmm. It's going to be deposits over time. You're going to give your graphic designer a deposit. You'll give your editor a deposit. You'll give, you know, certain different people deposits. So it's not like it's a big chunk of money, you know, on your credit card or out of your bank account or whatever. But it's an investment over time, and that's where your book plan comes in because in your book plan you're going to be figuring out, how do I make my money back? Mhm. Well, now, so if you're just writing, question, yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. If I you're writing just for the fun of writing, and you're just just complaining the whole time, I can't believe I just wrote somebody a check for a hundred dollars. I wrote this one a check for five hundred dollars. You know, you're looking at expenses as expenses rather than as an investment, and as you're an not investment. considering how I'm going to at least make back my investment if not get a return on my investment. Mhm. Now, there's another question, and. Um, uh, Karen is saying, are there publishing incubators that would offer uh, this uh, publishing houses that would help? Absolutely, there are. There are many, many, probably thousands of small publishing houses that can do all of this. They they will coach you. They will provide you know the editing. They provide the graphic design. I didn't get through all the other stuff. You know, they do all the prep production. They may provide some publicity and marketing uh, services for you. Those are some other folks that will be on your dream team. And then even order fulfillment. Um, when you have orders that come in, they can ship it out and all that kind of stuff. So um, there are, and, and I can't even, I mean, there are two that I work with very closely because I know them and um, I trust their work. And so you'll have to do the work of finding 
you know, companies or individuals of, of those I've listed, an editor, a graphic designer, who you know and trust. And I would suggest the first place to start is with people you know who have a book that's been published. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like how do you find a good dentist? You know, you have somebody with nice teeth, right? Right. So, right. you so know, you find that. someone, right, you find someone who has a book that you like, that is done well. Even the people who have a book that's not so nice. You want to get some of the other side of the story too, right? So you want to ask mm-hmm. them who their publisher, publishing company that they use and tell you about their experience, who they use to edit and graphic design and, you know, would they recommend that person? People will have all kinds of stories from good to nightmarish. And so mm-hmm. you really do want to kind of talk to people in the industry. Again, another good reason to join some of the writers' groups and uh, talk to some of them about their experiences. So, yeah. Right. Well, let's just talk about, I mean, just getting that book together. Now, some people may determine that they want to develop a book along with several other people. Let's call it just the collaborative book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are they and what are the advantages and disadvantages of a collaborative book? So a collaborative book is a joint project, a joint venture between, you know, several, two or more um, co-authors. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as an anthology, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And typically it has a common theme, you know, basically with uh, collaborative books, each participating co-author is contributing a chapter or two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than writing the whole book. So that's one of the advantages of participating in a collaborative book project is that you don't have to write the whole book yourself, which is great if you are either a first-time author or a really, really, really busy person but who wants to, you know, participate in a book project. Um, so, again, say you don't have time or you don't have enough content or you haven't done enough research or you don't have the confidence or whatever to write, 50,000 words, but you feel pretty comfortable that you can write 5,000 words, mm-hmm. a 5,000-word chapter. That's great. And so let's just, to just pretend that you and your group have decided to write, um, let's use the Civil War since we're in the midst of that commemoration. You've decided to write uh, a book about African-American women uh, in the Civil War. Okay. Okay, and so you either have an ancestor or a town that you want to write about or, you know, a genealogical line that you've traced or some remarkable, you know, African American women who've done some you did some great things back in Civil War days. And so each of your, let's say five or twelve or whatever, co authors will contribute. You all know what the theme, the one theme of the book is. You're contributing each of your chapters and um, you know, you share um, not only the spotlight, right? Everybody's name is on the book as a co-author. Um, and typically uh, with anthologies or collaborative books, uh, oftentimes uh, it'll be, you know, edited by so-and-so. So it'll be mm-hmm. XYZ, book the title, and it's edited by whomever. But oftentimes mm-hmm. for collaborative books, all of the author's names are listed. So you, you are actually a published author, which feels great. Um, so not only are you sharing the spotlight and the content development, but you're also sharing the cost of production. Mm-hmm. And you also get to share the royalties and you share the marketing uh, work that is, has to be done in promotion of the book. So, you know, it really is a joint venture and a collaborative effort from beginning to end. It should be. 
Yeah. Um, oftentimes with collaborative books, there should be a person who is sort of the lead, uh, you know, project management person who, um, you know, is maybe the core contact for the group. That way you don't have, you know, 20 different ideas about what the book cover should look like. Sometimes it's much easier if there's one person who's deciding on certain things, like the book cover, like the book title, uh, you know, certain things that are just decided by someone and everybody else just signs on to that and says, yes, I'm good for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I will write my chapter within these parameters. I get three images in my chapter. It's going to be 5,000 words, same parameters for everybody. You know, I get a 100-word bio and a photo of myself and, you know, whatever. So that that's collaborative books. And, again, you know, advantages is, is that you get to be an author. You don't have to write a whole book. And it's kind of this wonderful shared experience among other other writers. Disadvantages, you know, you got to share some of the money and yeah. um, share the cost. And uh, you may have to give and take on a couple of things that, you know, design issues. But other than that, I think it's a great option, especially, again, for first-time authors. Right. It, it does sound like a, a great opportunity, as you said, for a first-time author. But, um, you know, is it better to go through a traditional or academic publisher or to self-publish a book? I mean, we had a question earlier about self-publishing. So what would you recommend? Um, I don't know that one is better or worse. Um, mm-hmm. There are pros and cons for each. Uh, traditional publishing typically has a uh, much broader appeal to authors because we, you know, we like to be able to say we're published by Simon and Schuster or you know whatever large um, publishing house there is who would take us on. Um, but uh, you know, there there's some cons to that as well. Obviously, you know, there's no well the pros obviously there's, that there's no cost to you. In other words, you are not funding as an author. You're not funding the project. The publishing house is funding it, so there's no upfront cost from you. Whether you go directly to the publisher and sell your manuscript that way, or you go through an agent, you still shouldn't be paying anybody. Agents get paid out of your uh, advance or they get you know paid other ways you're not handing over any cash to an agent so keep that in mind mm-hmm. um, traditional publishers oftentimes will help with marketing and and do a wonderful you know they have great influence on the distribution end of it and getting your book to uh, various distribution points online offline bookstores and so forth uh, so that is a great advantage a great 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 advantage um, you often will get an advance to mm-hmm. write or complete your book. And then, of course, you also get paid royalties on book sales after a certain point. Um, some of the cons for traditional publishing, you know, going the pr- traditional route, is that you really oftentimes lose the ultimate control of the content and the look of your book. I mean, so you'll have a publisher who says, yes, you're writing this wonderful book about these African-American women during the Civil War, and you've written this book, but we're going to change Chapter 5, and we don't really like the way you referred to this in Chapter 12, so we're going to take that out. And so all this stuff that you've created that, you know, is near and dear to your heart, they're making changes that you've signed off on a contract to say that, you know, the final deal is left up to them for what mm-hmm. the book looks like. And, and oftentimes I've heard from authors the book 
is nothing like what they initially wrote. So you mm-hmm. do lose some control. Oftentimes you lose um, ownership to the rights. It's questionable. You've got to check your contract for that. And then oftentimes um, traditional publishers uh, maintain first right of refusal for anything else that you produce, any other books. If that uh, initial book uh, is shopped around as a screenplay or anything else that it might become, they have, you know, oftentimes rights to that. And that is really critical when you're looking at a contract for a traditional publisher. On the self-publishing end, obviously on the pro side, you get to maintain all the control. But Mm -hmm. you also, with control, have responsibility, right? You get to decide what the content is, what the direction is. You get to decide what the book cover looks like and the interior design and all of that kind of stuff. Um, You get all of the revenue, obviously, for the book, but you also have to bear all of the expense as well. Mm -hmm. You're the one who's making this investment unless you get somebody to come in and, you know, be an angel investor for you. You can Mm -hmm. print as many as you like. You can change it later and do a second printing. And, you know, all of that kind of stuff is is all completely, all of the rights remain your own. But, again, I caution authors to take a look at any contract that you sign, which honestly you don't have to sign a contract. Even with the smaller self-publishing companies, you shouldn't have to. Basically, what they're doing is printing your book for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't even have to sign a contract with them. Um, but if you do, make sure you look at it and make sure you know that the files belong to you, all of the rights belong to you, and you maintain 100% complete ownership, 100% complete ownership of all of the content, the artwork, the illustrations, everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get control over that. But, again, you also bear the cost of production, printing, marketing, distribution, and all that, and that's why it's so important to have a publishing dream team that you trust. Wow, wow. So you have really taken us full circle to understanding where we need to begin with our outline and where we need to end with our publishing dream team or maybe begin with our publishing dream team (laughs) to help us begin with our outline. (laughs) Right. Wow, so this is just wonderful. Well, let me just open the open the lines just in case anyone wants to call in and ask you a question. Um, so the the number is 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Uh, but let me just ask you a question. Have you un- uncovered any surprises as you have assisted others in getting that special book published? Surprises. There are many surprises. (laughs) I'm I'm surprised and saddened um, by some of the stories that I hear of authors who have gone to, um, you know, independent publishing companies and they haven't gotten what they expected. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, And it's unfortunate because they've made a financial investment and a time investment to get, you know, a product that they expect to be quality, and either the timelines and deadlines haven't been met or the final product is not what they had hoped for. Mm-hmm. And so that's with that, I recommend you go with, utilize the resources that you have. Uh, again, use, just like you would find a dentist or a hairstylist or whatever, ask people you know um, who they have used for their production or for their editing or whatever, 
um, and use those people. Find out if they would recommend who they used and use them. You know, I'm a resource. You can reach out to me. My email right. address and in is, fact, let uh, us know. Yes, how yes. can they reach out to you? Uh, my email address is Anita at writeyourlife.net. And so just shoot me an email if you have a question, and I'll be happy to to, to answer you uh, on that. But, yeah, um, those are some of the, the sort of horror stories that I've heard, um, actually just recently with an author who is dealing with a publisher at a distance. They're in different cities, and they're working on a collaborative book, and the publisher is pushing all of the co-authors to purchase their books in a hurry, yet this particular author has not seen a final proof. Mm-hmm. So she's like, well, do I buy these? She's telling me I only have a certain time to purchase them before I can't get it at this discount any longer, which to me is a red flag. Yes. You should always be able to purchase your books at you know a certain price. That should not change you know, overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should always be able to get a final proof that you have to sign off on to say this is absolutely the content exactly like this that should go in my chapter or in my book. And that should be after your professional editor has reviewed it for errors and everything. And, and if you don't have that yet, then that book should not be printed until mm-hmm. you sign off on that final proof. Very good advice, wonderful advice. Well, you have really given us uh, a wealth of information that we can go back and listen once again to this Blog Talk Radio show on writing because I think that the tips will help everyone. So thank you so very much for sharing with us tonight all of the information on getting that book written and published. So thank you so very much. Thanks for having me, Bernice. Okay. Well, please tune in next Thursday. And I have a question for you. Have you attempted to prove oral history shared by family members and friends? Well, join author, book publisher, and family historian Denise Griggs as she describes the research process she went through to find documents to prove and or disprove the oral family history given by her grandfather, Wilbert Hunt, and his sister, Julia Hunt Richardson. This research is published in a book entitled A Mulatto Slave, The Events in the Life of Peter Hunt from 1844 to 1915. Through her research, she has traced her mother's family in Mississippi all the way back to Ireland. And it's a very interesting story that I'm sure all of you will want to hear about. So good night and Thank you, Anita, and remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives and beyond. Let's keep this conversation going on Facebook and the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and like my research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow morning with Angela Walton-Raji and Nurturing Our Roots 
with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you so very much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Chatters, I've enjoyed the conversation with you. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, President of BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, and my website is genieberoots.com. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after broadcast and iTunes. So good night, everyone. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night. Good night, Anita. Good night. <laughs>